need to get yourself a setup. I got two monitors here and everything. I really, what I need to do is just get a fucking webcam for my monitor. And I know I've said that like for the past two months and I just am too lazy to do. <laughs> like I have a decent monitor where like I can look at shit like split screen and it's big enough. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I do have like this setup, but it's overly complicated because like I record on the laptop and then I just have like articles and shit pulled up on the desktop. But <laughs> it's more complicated than it needs to be. I don't know. We'll we'll get there eventually, maybe with some Patreon money. <laughs> Very good. I told you a lot of the stuff I have was free from the university. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that that's what keeps us going, folks. It's not your money; it's just your support. Just the satisfaction I see of the listens, and just it's <laughs> me all warm and fuzzy inside. That's it. This is just all about our egos. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. But um, yeah. So. Let's uh, just keep gassing ourselves up here, buddy, and just sit around and talk to each other for the next hour. What do you say? (laughs) Sure. Yeah, with that, welcome to the Intervention Podcast. It's Nick here with Levi. Steve is sadly absent tonight, uh, but he does have a legitimate excuse. He did commit to recording already with our comrade Evan. So I'm sure you guys will see down the line uh, what they're doing over there. But I think it ties into the, uh, the spooky season that that is upon us. Mm. We'll see. You know, tonight, buddy, like we were talking about, and this really came together quickly, as I think folks will probably realize as we go through, especially as it is compared to our recent output. Um, but this episode is definitely going to not be as tightly scripted just because I think we decided to do a bit of an emergency episode given some recent news that came out. And it's just really timely because it felt like something that needed to be addressed, especially given that we're in the midst of the New Deal series and also that we're going to have an episode coming out after this at some point in the future on the 18th through Mayor, right? So mm-hmm. today is uh, September 21st. And we're recording going for the hat trick today for the third day in a row. But um, yesterday you sent us an article in the group chat about Biden and some comparisons to the to the New Deal, I guess, resuscitating these comparisons to uh, FDR. And it was really stemming from this creation of the uh, American Climate Corps. Yeah. I mean, it's the Biden administration themselves that are making the comparison by calling this initiative the American Climate Corps. I mean, it's intentionally designed to recall the alphabet administrations of the New Deal. Yeah, the ACC, right? We can just add another one to the list. Just speaking of what the Biden administration is actually saying, I thought we could just start by just going to the White House fact sheet, right? Like they always put out the truth, quote unquote, about what these institutions are in terms of how they want it to be framed and viewed, right? Just the facts. Just the facts. Just the fact sheet. No fact check by Snopes needed. (laughs) So, but if we just go to this fact sheet and we'll link everything that we're talking about as we usually do with these news episodes in the description, so you can go check them out for yourself. But kind of the subheader to this, the main descriptor is that the American Climate Corps is a body which will be purposed to, quote, train young people in clean energy, conservation, climate resilient skills, create good paying jobs, and tackle the climate crisis. The fact sheet further reads, getting down into the body a little bit, 
Today, through his Investing in America agenda, President Biden is delivering on that commitment by taking executive action to launch the American Climate Corps, a workforce training and service initiative that will ensure more young people have access to the skills-based training necessary for good-paying careers in the clean energy and climate resilience economy. The American Climate Corps will mobilize a new, diverse generation of more than 20,000 Americans, putting them to work conserving and restoring our lands and waters, bolstering community resilience, deploying clean energy, implementing energy-efficient technologies, and advancing environmental justice, all while creating pathways to high-quality, good-paying, clean energy and climate resilience jobs in the public and private sectors after they complete their paid training program. There's a little bit more that I want to read of this, but I just one thing that sticks out to me reading this out loud is this use of like resilience. And it almost seems like a little bit of a capitulation that like there's something inevitable coming and we just have to kind of like resist it to the best of our abilities at this point. Right. It's almost like a really subtle acknowledgement of what the framing of this actually is and what we're actually facing. Yeah. I mean, to call it an actual emergency would require declaring an environmental emergency, which is just a completely other thing that activists are calling for Joe Biden to do. But they don't want to use that language of it actually being impending and unstoppable or something that's already upon us. Mm-hmm. They need to use the language that it's still off into the future because it really justifies a lot of the other actions that they're willing to take at the same time. Yeah, definitely. But just getting back to the rest of this uh, fact sheet that I want to read real quick. Second paragraph, the American Climate Corps will focus on equity and environmental justice, prioritizing communities traditionally left behind, including energy communities that powered our nation for generations leveraging the talents of all members of our society and prioritizing projects that help meet the administration's Justice 40 goal. I don't know what that is, but we'll have to look into that. Uh, It's probably just some mumble of words that they threw out there a year ago and now they're coming back to. Yeah, kind of like this. (laughs) Additionally, President Biden is calling on tribal, state, and local governments, labor unions, nonprofit service allies, the private sector, and philanthropy to collaborate with the federal government to expand skills-based training partnerships to ensure our nation has the workforce necessary to meet our climate goal. In fact, just today, five new states are launching their own climate corps, which will work as implementing collaborators of the American Climate Corps. With today's announcement, 10 states will have launched climate corps since 2020. To go back to a phrase that's in there, it says we're prioritizing communities traditionally left behind. Who has been traditionally leaving them behind? Are they admitting to the fact that the United States government, that the Obama-Biden administration, that the Biden administration has been leaving people behind? Who is that designed for? Yeah. Well, and even somebody in that list of allies, even if they say, oh, it wasn't us, but it was the private sector, you're still calling on the private sector to come in as like a collaborator, right? I mean, these traditionally left behind communities, if we just look at it from like an environmental perspective, these are the communities that are like the dumping grounds for our landfills, our radioactive waste, all of the refuse that goes into the waters from like these manufacturing plants that don't give a fuck about environmental justice, just profits. Right. And they're disproportionately poor black and brown communities. Not to say that rural white America doesn't suffer under this kind of shit either. But yeah. Or just look at where the new pipeline is going to be going through Iowa. It intentionally avoids cities that are over 100,000 people just goes through rural white America, completely disregarding any of their claims to clean water, clean living, 
or safety. I mean, you can talk about Flint, you can talk about East Palestine. They don't care necessarily that they are indigenous or non-white. They just care whether or not they're poor. Yeah, 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 rich or poor. Yeah, I mean, and add to that list, and East Palestine isn't too far away, but uh, like something that we're focused on um, in terms of local organizing, Beaver County, the right. shell cracker plant up in Monaco. Just, it's a short lifespan of this plant, and I think it's like two years or two to five years, it's something in that range that it's actually been around in terms of construction and operation. They've been shut down multiple times. You can go on like residents' Facebook pages, and they're complaining about rightfully complaining about the sky looking orange at night off smells in the air. And, you know, again, and that is a poor left behind community. Right. So again, like it'll be interesting to see as like this climate initiative plays out. Um, there's very real, obvious polluters, enemies to climate justice out there. I mean, are you willing to, you know, stand with us and take down the cracker plant up there? We don't need any more fucking plastics. So let's right. see how far this goes. Yeah, I mean, they love to use this idea or this language of economic incentives, yet they're constantly pouring more and more money into private sector initiatives in order to create the sort of grounds for economic profitability when why do we need this middleman? Why are we constantly dumping profits into the coffers of these companies so that they can make more money? It doesn't make sense. Why is there no movement to penalize the actions of these companies or to go the other route and try to do something completely different. Yeah, absolutely. And I think we're going to get into that a little bit in terms of how the Biden administration actually interacts with polluters and the fossil fuel industry, and especially as it relates to kind of like the lead up to this executive announcement. But we'll get there, I think, a little bit down the road. But in any case, I had some kind of pithy comments in the write up here, but I think we've already kind of buried the lead, but ultimately, you know, we can't pack it in and go home yet um, because we haven't won. This isn't comrade Jose Biden successfully implementing communism, right? Which the other side of this that we're going to have to contend with is that this is absolutely going to be painted as socialist communist ideology being implemented right here in the U.S. of A. It's going to be painted as like, well, an egregious overreach of executive power an unnecessary spending by the right, right? Well, of course, it's not communism. It's a socialism with American characteristics, right? He's <laughs> just trying to control the economy to create the grounds for communism down the line. We really need that production. We need to ramp up our own uh, production here so that we're ready for communism when it's finally time. Right, yeah. So obviously, I mean, I think we're getting to this idea that you and I are very skeptical of this whole initiative and what it means. I guess on the positive side, I do think, and we'll talk about this a little bit more as we get into it, but I do think that we, ha we have to acknowledge that there was some real grassroots, young people-led organizing efforts to just, get, to just to get Biden to even do this, which we know is insufficient, but I don't want to discredit the people that put in the time and work, and we'll talk about them in the episode. So with that, you know, there's a lot to still, I guess, learn about what this is going to be. I think it's going to be kind of like a multi-year process in terms of where the money's allocated, how successful the implementation is, what people actually get paid part of this climate core. I think that's something part of it, because I think you could very easily see a scenario where the people that get brought in are paid like very low wages to do some kind of outsourced privatized work as part of this, too. I mean, again, on the negative side. 
But you could see all these things happening because we have concrete examples of how the government really just likes to ultimately say we're doing this and then they privatize implementation. So we'll see where that goes. But there's a lot of unknowns still. Yeah, I think what they're trying to push this as is a extension of something like AmeriCorps, which I'm trying not to be cynical when I'm considering this this early on. But it's just so easy to think of how AmeriCorps actually functions, where they provide a workforce for the nonprofit industry, where that nonprofit industry can pay them literal minimum wage or nothing at all. And the government will pay them minimum wage in order for, you know, quote unquote, experience and changing the world and fixing X, Y, and Z when really most of these organizations are just dumping grounds for billionaires tax write-offs. They're not really accomplishing very much in terms of structural change. You know, it's so funny that you say that because I was talking to one of my comrades in PSL and I actually asked her to be on this, but she couldn't come on just because of some organizing conflict. She's doing some real work tonight, but uh, she made the same point as we're talking. I sent her this article because we were talking about our new deal series. So I sent her this just to kind of yuck it up a little bit and, you know, then have some serious conversation. And she brought up the same thing just to read what she said to me. She said, not to mention, I totally expect the climate core to be AmeriCorps style with fresh college graduates making less than minimum wage. <laughs> so like, you know, yeah, it's this, gonna be, a cynical socialist, right? But it's going to be a playground for people that can take a few years off and live on minimum wage because their actual needs are being taken care of. Right. Or at least being deferred. Right. In any case, let's get back into just kind of looking at where this came from. Okay. I think if we look at American politics over the last decade or so, I think it's easy and fair to say that there's a through line directly from agitation around the Green New Deal to this executive order that came out yesterday, right? Because the creation of a civilian climate corps was actually proposed back in 2021 by a large group of quote unquote progressive lawmakers with the intention of having it included in the so called Inflation Reduction Act. And this was part of Biden's allegedly ambitious climate policy. And I don't know if I could fit any more kind of like backhanded qualifiers into a sentence, but we'll leave it there. I think the only the only phrase that could be added in there is it was originally part of the build back better plan, the overall initiative. And then it became part of the Inflation Reduction Act, as yeah. though any of those words actually mean anything. This was part of his original plan that was right. immediately just immediately trashed down to the IRA. Yeah, because, you know, he was going to be our most uh, ambitious president on climate, right? And just to kind of further that legacy, this part of the proposal, again, which, as we're talking about, was initially in the Inflation Reduction Act, was decapitated by a friend of the pod and fossil fuel lobby marionette, Joe Manchin, among other pieces of human garbage, right? And what did make it, notably was massive handouts to the oil and gas industry as it was kind of touted as this transformative climate legislation, right? But again, so that was obviously, I think, perceived as a defeat to a lot of people that were organizing and agitating around that specific facet of the legislation. So again, I want to keep giving credit to people, you know, doing work. I don't really even want to comment on the organizations that they're part of. I don't know enough about them. There's like 50 plus organizations that signed on to a letter demanding that Biden take executive action. I don't know. I can't speak to everything about the ideology of these groups, but there's people on the ground, you know, doing what they believe in at this moment. Right. So I got to give them credit for continuing to pursue this. And despite kind of like what would be seen as a setback with the IRA, ultimately getting him to the point of like signing even just kind of this, I think, tepid advancement and 
climate justice. Yeah, and to just build on your point about supporting these organizations, at least in terms of this one initiative, it's not as though we're claiming that we support every single aspect of every single one of these 50 organizations. I mean, that's insane. We don't. Right. But we need to see where victories can be had, even if they're small, because we are in such a hole right now that even these sort of small piecemeal, even symbolic actions can have real consequences as long as people continue to push for more. And I think as we go through how the Sunrise Movement, how the organization is understanding it, they also don't consider this itself to be the victory. I believe that they consider this to be one step. Yeah, and I actually want to read a statement from the Sunrise Movement's executive director, uh, Varshini Prakash, who looks like a you know very young, dedicated organizer with critiques of the Democratic Party. I think one of the articles that we looked at, Levi, as we were putting this together, explicitly noted her as being like a frequent critic of the Biden administration, right? So she seems to at least have a good sense of what this all actually means. And But let's just read her statement. Mm-hmm. So she says, quote, three years ago, I sat on then Democratic presidential nominee Joe Biden and Bernie Sanders Unity Climate Task Force and shared one of Sunrise Movement's top priorities for the future administration, a civilian climate corps, a visionary jobs program to put thousands of young people to work in real career pathways fighting for their future. Now, after years of demonstrating and fighting for a climate corps, we turned a generational rallying cry into a real jobs program that will put a new generation to work stopping the climate crisis. With the ACC and the historic climate investments won by our broader movement, the path towards a Green New Deal is beginning to become visible. Today's historic action to put an American climate corps into motion is a clear demonstration that the Biden administration knows there are more ways they can leverage executive power to lead an all-out mobilization of our government and society to stop the climate crisis. Young people everywhere should feel empowered by this victory and continue demanding the change we need. That's important. Continue, right? Yeah. I want to focus on this paragraph for just a second because I think there's actually three things that are going on in this paragraph that are important to point out. So the first is that he acknowledges that this is an administrative action by Joe Biden, which means that this could have happened over two years and eight months ago. This could have been put in place. From day one, Joe Biden could have signed the executive order to make this real. He waited that amount of time for God knows why. I mean, we can speculate here, and it would be very cynical and relatively easy to speculate why. But that's the first Leave that thing. to the imagination. But yeah, yeah. (laughs) Trying to be a little nicer, but still have to be snarky about it. Second is that since it is an executive action rather than congressional legislation, it must draw from already existing funds. I think he's making that statement that this already is a compromise, that they wanted something much larger, much more serious than this executive action. So she wanted something that was much more substantial. And the third would be they want. Joe Biden to take even more of these executive actions. They want him to declare an environmental emergency so that there's actually more freeing of funds, more executive actions, more executive avenues that can be taken now that the administration is finally appearing to agree that the congressional route is no longer an option. So I think there's a lot of work happening in just those two sentences in terms of what they see as the future of this movement. Definitely. Yeah. And just to finish the quote, 
This past summer, we saw record climate disasters, record labor strikes demanding good, meaningful work, and major climate protests led by young people. The American Climate Corps is a response that begins to meet the moment and show young people how their government can work for them. We're often asked how President Biden can win the support and enthusiasm of young people. He's gotten our attention. Keep going. And I think that just kind of builds off that last paragraph, right? Where, again, I, the immediate thing that sticks out to me on top of what you said is that, you know, we need to continue demanding change and Biden needs to continue validating our even tepid, minimal support for him, right? Yeah, this is the idea that people are constantly questioning, why is nobody like Biden? Why is nobody supporting Biden? And the sort of easy answer is, why would they? Right. And this is one thing that the administration is going to point to over and over again in the coming months of the election, but it's not going to be enough unless they continue to build off of that momentum. And I love that they wrote it with that in mind. They're not really, I mean, they're praising what's happened, but it's with an eye to the future. They are not giving up. They're not saying that we are indebted to Biden for this. They're basically saying that Biden is indebted to us for bringing this to him. We're bringing him the attention and the possible re-election that he is looking for, not the other mm -hmm. way around. So just rhetorically, it's a really well-written statement. Yeah, no, it's very good. And I think, you know, for a young progressive organization, this is just good representation of where I, I would expect a lot of good people to be at, you know? And to me, I don't think there's a lot of negative that can come out of this either obviously the movement or just the creation of this. I mean, again, any kind of positive outcome we get on the climate front is, is good by like definition at this point in time. Right. I mean, yeah, the vehicle is going full speed ahead over the cliff. I mean, hundreds of thousands of people could die if the temperature rises by another 0.5 degrees. And yeah. we're on path to do that. If nothing happens. Absolutely. So any action that prevents even 10,000 deaths is worthwhile. Yes. From like a broader perspective, I think it's also showing people that organizing works, right? This generation of organizers filled with a lot of young people. And two, when I, and again, this is a little bit more cynical of me, but when it's inevitably exposed that it's not enough, this is another vehicle to kind of take progressives to the point of, okay, well, fuck this. We need socialism. We need something more radical. Like, again, and I think this is why I'm not going to come down and condemn and say people shouldn't be wasting their time on doing this. You know, like for me personally, my organizing efforts are not focused on the Biden administration. And I think that's okay. And I think it's also okay for people to be doing this, right? Because again, we talk about processes and movements. There's a lot of people that have to learn that lesson in different ways and, you know, get meaningful work done as they're going through their own political, you know, development and realization. There's always going to be progressives fighting in that arena. And I think that's okay. Yeah. Especially right now. Right. Because we need all the allies we can get. Cause not only is this an issue of unemployment of people getting good work, of people getting good wages, it's literally, you know, saving the planet. Yeah. There's no larger mission statement possible. So we need all of this support. Right. If there's ever a time for a popular front. I mean, like, right. Fascism was a pretty big deal 
not to discount that, but I think anti-environmental annihilation, also worth fighting for. Definitely. So yeah, so just to reiterate, good for all the folks that have been fighting and pushing on this front. It's necessary work. It's good work. And so good on you for that. You know, one thing as a talking point, I mentioned my comrade, she brought up to me this idea that like, is it becoming just more politically impossible for people to do nothing for the for an administration to do nothing on the climate front? And again, that's from a combination of things. I mean, it is like, as we're talking about the organizing efforts that are on the ground right now, and also just like the sheer fucking reality staring people in the face. So like, do you at least symbolically have to do something regardless of, you know, I mean, I still think we're going to see, and we are seeing climate denialism still coming out of like the Republican party. But I mean, I'm seeing less outright denialism and more just kind of like, well, you know, we have to temper what we do. We can't destroy the economy too fast. And that's from the Democrats as well, to be clear. But I mean, is the Overton window being pushed? And I hate, I fucking hate conversation like this sometimes, but like even in like within the confines of our two faux parties or whatever, is it being pushed a little bit to the point where like people at least have to speak to this reality because the vast majority of the populace is acknowledging that it is an issue and that something, not sure what, something needs to be done. Even organizations like ExxonMobil are starting to talk about going beyond petroleum and saying that they need to be a part of the next phase. They're starting to comprehend that unless they actually do something, they're going to be left behind as these politics sort of redevelop and adjust. Mm -hmm. I take that as being 100% cynical on their part, and it's their desire to drag it from behind. You know, they're going to latch on and dig their heels in as much as possible and should be left behind. But I think it's yeah, I think it speaks to your point, though, that they now feel like they have to make that advertising. Ten years ago, they denied it. They denied that anything was happening in spite of the fact that they had research going back to the 1960s showing that it was happening. Yeah. So there are actual political goals that still exist, like Vic Ramaswamy, uh, I believe Donald Trump, you know, the heads of the Republican Party that still deny that there's a problem at all. But they are becoming less and less attached to the mainstream political discourse i hope uh maybe that's me speaking a little too optimistically that at least the language is changing if not the actions the actions are changing way slower than the advertisements yeah i mean and maybe it's just my perception of it as well but i would think that even like your mitt romney republican at this point has to acknowledge that something is going on right so like that center right in this country acknowledges that climate change is a problem so you're left with kind of like this fringe of ardent MAGA people that are just still on the on board of like, hey, saying it's not a thing. Right. And you'll still have like absolute goals on the Supreme Court or, you know, Coke Industries that will continue to lobby for the lie. But it's slowing down and they're finally getting to the point of acknowledgement. But it's not the same as taking action. Well, it's exactly. definitely a positive step, though. It is. But yeah, I mean, I think it's critical that we point out that like acknowledging is insufficient because you could acknowledge it all you want and still pass laws that benefit ExxonMobil and still enact new pipelines and new drilling leases on federal land, et cetera, et cetera, despite and which is what we've seen from Biden. Right. Come out the gate right. acknowledging it, but then enacting policies which are absolutely contradictory towards doing anything positive towards addressing it. 
to go further on this notion of the symbolic action and not to draw us away from the ACC, but I hope to just bring this into a slightly different context. We're recording this during the ongoing UAW stand-up strike. So the Inflation Reduction Act set federal investments in so-called green technology, including electric vehicle production. This money is real and will have a significant impact on American automakers and hopefully the environment. But at the same time, all explicit protections for labor were removed from the IRA in order to ensure its passage. So the UAW's contract expired on September 15th, and they're now aimed to secure those labor protections themselves. So thinking about this context in the context of the ACC, I think it's worthwhile actually reading the statement by Joe Biden that he made on September 15th. It flew under the radar. I actually didn't even know about it until I was looking deeper into it today. But he wrote, quote, no one wants a strike. Say it again. No one wants a strike. But I respect workers' rights to use their options under the collective bargaining system. And I understand the workers' frustration. Over generations, auto workers sacrificed so much to keep the industry alive and strong especially through the economic crisis and the pandemic. Workers deserve a fair share of the benefits they help create for an enterprise. I do appreciate that parties have been working around the clock. I've, and when I first called them at the first day of the negotiation, I said, please stay at the table as long as you can to try to work this out. And the, mm, they've been around the clock and the companies have made some significant offers. I'm reading this verbatim. This is just how Biden <laughs> talks. Sorry. <laughs> You still sound a little more coherent than he does. Yeah, I, I would like to emphasize if you look this up yourself that he's mumbling and like he's the exact opposite of charismatic when he's stating these. But taking these words for what they are, they are relatively good for an American president. So he continues. But I believe that you go further to enact record corporate profits mean record contracts for the UAW. I'm going to say that again. Record corporate profits, which they have, should be shared by record contracts for the UAW. And just as we're building an economy of the future, we need labor agreements for the future. It's my hope that the parties can return to the negotiation table to forge a win-win agreement. Joe Biden is no FDR, or else that would have come out way more coherent. And if you would listen to it, it would be way more rowling. But it's still the right thing to say as a symbolic act. We want him to say these kinds of things. Yeah, I mean, this motherfucker is a neoliberal. Born and bred, cut his teeth in that era. This is not neoliberal language. Right. And we need to push him for that. Right, right. He's being forced by the simple facts that lay before him on the ground to at least sound different. And we're already sort of bringing in the New Deal comparison, but that's what the left was doing to FDR. He was no firebrand on his own. As head of the Navy, he was in charge of pushing Americans' imperial mission in the Caribbean. He had no interest in helping anybody. He invented himself in order to get his political agenda passed. So this is symbolic. It's language by definition. But I don't consider that statement an insult, right? It's like that old joke. Two people are at a restaurant. One says, this food is so terrible. I couldn't eat one more bite without throwing up. And their partner agrees, adding, in such small portions. Almost all the actions which the Biden administration might have taken are falling far short of what's actually needed. It's actually sickening to think of how slow they're taking action on all of this. So we need to celebrate the few times that they take any small action. Like the metaphor I used earlier, 
it's great that they're finally starting to lift their foot off the gas of this car that's flying off the side of a cliff. We want them to stop the car and turn around, but maybe that's asking too much right now. We should just at least celebrate when they're lowering the speed. Yeah. And I think as we're doing now, don't give them the fucking credit for it. Give the credit to the UAW workers. Give the credit to the Sunrise Move for actually making this motherfucker say shit, which goes against his like base capitalist instincts. Right. He would much rather approve the Willow Project or crush the railroad strike again. He has no real positive interest in doing this. He feels like he's being forced to do it. And that's a good thing. We need a president that can feel that pressure. That's what a president is. Right. And that's just, again, it's not a sign that like, we're going to change the Democratic Party or anything like that. It's just a sign of like mass movements on the ground, which is what we want to nurture and grow and build something entirely new out of. Yeah, these are the tools we have. This is the great man that's in power. If he needs to feel like he's making this decision on his own, that's his legacy to build, I suppose. I don't give a flying rat's ass, you know? Yeah. It's about pushing. The push has to happen and it has to be celebrated when it appears to be effective. And Biden saying these things, Biden passing the ACC, are all symptoms of something working. As nascent as it is, but keep going. Right. So I, I think that is a good place maybe to transition. We already touched on it a little bit, but you look at all these articles, the articles that we pulled up, and as we're already alluding to, but this is inevitably kind of resuscitating this idea that Biden is the FDR of the new era, which was you know immediately bandied about even before he assumed the presidency. It's been pretty quiet on that run, especially after he crushed the rail workers strike, right? You know, right. just we got to remember to keep that in mind as well, that this guy is no, no explicit friend of labor. But, you know, we can just look at like the name of this, right? And as you already said, Levi, they're really leaning into it from the administration end. And so just naming it the American Climate Corps harkens back to the Civilian Climate Corps, which was started under FDR in the New Deal era, right? And just for a bit of background on that, and I'm sure we could do a whole episode on it, as we always say, but (laughs) the Civilian Conservation Corps was a nearly decade-long work relief program, which put about 300,000 young men to work in its first year, and in total, about 3 million before it was ended in 1942, to divert funding to the war. Mm -hmm. So I just want to make sure we point out that there's some obvious and clear differences between the ACC and the CCC of the FDR era. One is obviously the scope. We already touched on it a little bit. You know, we talked, we said just now 3 million people were put to work over the span of a decade. And, you know, typical of our modern day Democrats, in my view, who just always drip with raw ambition, they limited the scope pretty significantly off the bat, right? Their target is to put 20,000 workers to work within this program, which is modest if I'm kind. Right. And just to build off of what the original plan, the CCC represented. So this was one of the very first 100 days, part of the, what's called the first New Deal. This program became so immensely successful that it was renewed during the second New Deal and made radically larger. It even... As we want to think of this as out the gate, this was a huge monumental service act. It didn't become that until later when overwhelming public opinion 
pushed FDR to go even further in the New Deal. Right. And I guess the point I want to make is that even out of the gate, because it was grown, but out of the gate, we're not even as ambitious as we were. And now the other thing we have to acknowledge is that the external factors that are the impetus for both of these programs are different. I mean, this is a climate change scenario. And the other, we were dealing with a the Great Depression, where we had 20% unemployment. To get people back to work was obviously a high priority, as we've talked about in the New Deal era. But I think just like talking about it in these grounds, uh, or in these terms, without further exploration, really seeds to fighting by the definition of what a capitalist society should be, right? Because one of the things that you come across in these articles, like from AP, which we'll include in the notes, and we used to reference this a lot, was, well, you know, it's different because unemployment is much lower now, right? Oh, yeah. Nobody wants to work anymore, right? Right. But the fact of the matter is, is that there's still 6.4 million people unemployed in the U.S. right now. Okay. Like, I really don't give a fuck what the percentage is or anything like that, but just like the sheer mass of people. And as we've acknowledged time and time again, like capitalism requires this reserve army of labor. I watched the George Carlin skit earlier on Instagram today and like he didn't articulate it in the terms of like the reserve army of labor. He just said, but you know what? They need the poor to put the fucking pressure on the middle class. So they're scared to lose their jobs. Right. And it's just like, yeah, that's like a really easy way for people to understand that. But at the end of the day, there's still 6.4 million people living in economic precarity right now. Okay. So let's just be conservative and say, because this program is geared towards young people, right? So say 20% of that 6.4 million people is young people that would be qualified to enroll, apply to be part of this program, right? That is still like 1.2 million people, 1.25 million people that are out of work. We're talking about 20,000 jobs. Now, not everybody's going to go do this, but I mean, again, I think that just shows how limited the scope really is just in terms of putting people to work that are out of work that need jobs. Yeah, I think precarity is really the key word you use there. Unemployment needs to be maintained to keep wages and labor power down. And I think that's why it's important to keep in mind that there's a UAW stand-up strike going on right now that's actually, as well, pushing against that precarity. It's trying to establish well-paying jobs that are maintained and environmentally friendly. It's not just about this one UAW contract. It's actually setting a tone and setting a stage for other strikes, for other pushes, for other demands. This one strike, if it's successful, actually pushes other employers to be more careful about how they treat their employees. They can't constantly be threatening them that they're going to be laid off. And if Joe Biden maintains his position and keeps speaking the right way, keeps talking like a, I don't know, conscious, conscientious person rather than a neoliberal, it could actually spell out something very dangerous for the capitalist class. They would have to capitulate. And that is the comparison to the New Deal. It's not that the capitalist class was actually threatened and broken down by the New Deal. They just all of a sudden didn't have an outright flagrant ally in the state. Of course, that's heavily qualified because they still had an ally in the state, but they didn't have the same level of support that they had under a Herbert Hoover or under classical liberal understanding of state action. Yeah. The bourgeois democratic state is always an ally of the capitalist class. You can affect the degree to which they operate in their interest based on real grassroots organization. 
but you're never going to get it in your favor entirely. Right. And I think that's what we've consistently said from the beginning as we understand the New Deal is that it's about continually pushing and forcing Joe Biden, pushing ex-politician to constantly make the right decision. You can never trust that they're going to make the right decision. Because if you leave right. it to trust, the opposition is never, ever leaving it to trust. They are constantly lobbying and filling the coffers of these politicians, both left, right, center. Anybody that will take their phone call, anybody that will take their money, they are not going to relent. And that's why the movement cannot relent one inch either. Yeah. And that, you know, if we envision a scenario where they kind of take this to a conclusion where FDR did, you know, I, I, and I don't think that they will, but like where they do give people like a decent standard of living, but that we remember the lessons of like the Red Scare that followed and that you look back and say, hey, those socialists, those communists, those Reds, those people are the ones that stood with me to get what I wanted. And I understand it's a really tough conversation because there's real you know, there's real threats to people's livelihoods and everything like that as well. But, you know, to not fall into that same kind of thing where it's like we need to, okay, jettison all these people that stood and fought and fucking bled with us. And their ideology is different. But, hey, is there anything so bad about this ideology after all? Yeah, it's the cognitive dissidence that we need to hold on to as people start to understand that the way the structure of the economy works right now is not to their benefit, but in fact, is to their detriment. They might start looking around and saying, who else is saying this? Yeah. Well, we have the, the far right is saying it, but clearly for selfish, ridiculous reasons that are explicitly dangerous. And there are people on the left that are saying it, that are trying to claim that we can make this better. We can actually transform the system. We can transform this notion of this ideology to work for you. Yeah, absolutely. It's not something that can be taken lying down. I mean, we've touched on this a little bit as we have in the series that there were extreme material conditions that were pushing the Communist Party, pushing the left to capitulate to capitalism at this point, to literally save Europe from the rising tide of fascism. And unfortunately, it looks like we might be facing that again. Who knows? But that needs to be maintained. That needs to be kept in mind. Yeah. Yeah. So just to move on to one last facet of this before we kind of wrap up with our closing conversation. But I do think we need to look at this in the international context, because, again, we're dealing with a inherently global problem. Right. And Levi, when you sent this article and I stewed on it for a second and thought about, OK, how can we do this in the context of the podcast? My mind obviously immediately goes to imperialism, because, again, that is like the ostensible stated mission of this podcast to expose American and the history of British imperialism, right? Which I think we really do, even, you know, regardless of what we're talking about, we try to at least touch on those aspects of it, you know? So my mind goes there immediately. And if I could kind of paraphrase the thought that I had, my initial gut reaction was that this is an inward looking solution to a global problem. And that's not to say that domestic policy isn't needed. It absolutely is. But it needs to be this and. It needs to be much more of this and. And we'll get into the and a little bit. But that's, again, like where I kind of thought, like when we were talking about how to structure this, we need to make sure that we include a conversation on this facet. Yeah. And today on Democracy Now!, there was this great long form interview between Amy Goodman and President Gustav Petro, where Petro stated, 
There's not necessarily been conversation among themselves, but rather each one is speaking to their own people. The stage of the United Nations is used, but to speak to one's own country or to see oneself. So no less than the president uh, of Colombia is agreeing with us here. But he goes on and he draws a comparison to conversations among trade talks. So he says, quote, the status of the conversation among climate change is very different than, say, the status of the conversation around world trade. World trade has a binding institution. If one breaches a rule that they're subject to, they're subject to serious financial punishment, end quote. What he's calling for is actual organizations, treaties, power to punish countries which are violating their environmental standards or violating acts which are meant to prevent world cataclysmic events. So the actions of the ACC, like the New Deal CCC, is very parochial. I'm not saying there's no international effect to a national environmental plan, especially in a place as large as the United States. And as much of an environmental abuser as the U.S. is. Currently and especially historically. Mm. And I'm also, just to state it obviously, I am not claiming that there shouldn't be a nationally tailored environmental plan. But rather, for these plans to be truly effective, they need to be planned and executed through an effective international organization, or at least through an effective international lens. Much as trade is planned and executed through an effective international organization, the same needs to be said about environment. And I know the neoliberal think tanks claim that none of this is planned, none of this is executed through an international organization, through trade, but we all know it is. We know what the WTO is there to do. Right. Well. And, you know, as we're going through this, I mean, I think our skepticism and petroskepticism, I mean, and petroskepticism comes from like real world experience. I mean, the guy was a fucking gorilla, right? Yeah, he's uh, an incredible figure. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, someone that we should critically support, Mm -hmm. uphold what he's trying to do, especially as it relates to U.S. imperialism in that region of the world and building ties between Venezuela right? Colombia and Venezuela were basically set as enemies by the U.S. when they're fucking neighbors. In any case, I don't, we don't need to get into that here and now. But, um, but again, that skepticism is really validated, especially as we look at the tail of the tape. And as you're talking, Levi, about actually having, as you're quoting Petro, about having organizations that actually kind of have teeth in them, right? That can actually punish abusers. I think back to this conversation around the Paris Climate Accords. You know, I think we need to take this all kind of into the full picture when we look at the U.S.'s relationship to global climate initiatives. So there's all this, you know, injustifiable rage when Trump withdraws from like the Paris Climate Accords. And then there's this celebration when, you know, a year and a half or maybe even just over a year later, I think it was the first day of his presidency, Biden, you know, signs back up to be part of the Paris Climate Accords. And, you know, the liberals celebrate and everything like that. but. Where in that, where in that agreement are there actual mechanisms to punish people that don't live up to their standards? I mean, we can touch on an article here that I found in the Nation that highlights, and in, in the Nation, you know, not some fucking communist outlet, just highlighting all of the areas that the U.S. has failed to live up to what they said that they would do as it pertains to these agreements, what they said they would do in terms of like global equity, et cetera, et cetera. But we can get into that. We did an episode on the Cochabamba People's Agreement or the People's Agreement of Cochabamba, which was a climate document written back 
in, I think, 2011. You'd have to go back to, I think, June of last year to find the episode we did on it. I think it was uh, BLE <laughs> before Levi. <laughs> but, you know, stuff like this, what we're talking about right now was like explicitly called out by this people's organization to say, look, you know, there actually needs to be mechanisms within these agreements that take people to task when they don't live up to these. And the onus really needs to be put on the historical culprits of climate abuse, right? The people that took away wealth from the global South, the people that per capita pollute way more than anywhere else in the world. So, you know, we can talk about the Paris Climate Accords and all that kind of stuff, but we need to take the conversation beyond that and really look at how the U.S. refuses to engage in meaningful change on a global scale and again, making amends for the devastation that they've wrought, right? Because we've not only disproportionately polluted, but that disproportionate pollution comes from the fact that we've siphoned off all of this wealth from the overexploited nations of the global South, which really mitigates their ability to, you know, protect themselves in kind of like a proactive sense, economically, infrastructurally, to just deal with the things on the ground every day that they're going to have to deal with. Because, you know, when we talk about potentially 100,000 people dying in a day due to a climate-related disaster, a climate-change-related disaster, people in the global south are going to be disproportionately affected by this. Yeah. To double down, these symbolic actions are important, as we said earlier, and it's better late than never that these symbolic actions are taken, but they are a first step, just as the statement said in the Sunrise Movement. They need to be taken further to be real, to be effective. And beyond just the history of dirty emissions by the United States and drilling and dirty commodity production here. As you're saying, there are actual financial imperialistic concepts that are going on through organizations like the World Trade Organization, the IMF, World Bank, that are forcing these nations to continue to trade and develop dirty commodities because they are not uh, incentivized to invest in environmentally friendly new commodities or new production. It's way easier for the WTO to force them to continue doing what already is shown to be profitable through organizations like ExxonMobil and Shell in order to continue making the payments on their debts. Because God forbid they ever forgive or restructure these debts in a way that allows them to actually move their economy towards something that would be considered environmentally friendly. But the way that neocolonial action is taken, it allows, it allows nations like the United States to look at a former colonized nation and say, look at how much they're producing. Look at all these dirty commodities they're producing. Why aren't they doing their fair share? When it's like, well, you have a gun to their head and you're saying either pay me or die and you're not giving them any other option to produce. Yeah. Also, it's like, why should people in the global South not be, why, why should they not have the same right to like a decent life, a quality of life that has been afforded to people in the global North? And I'm, I'm saying we're all going to have to do our part at some level, right? You know, they always, and we've talked about this on the podcast before, you know, they always throw out China as like this global boogeyman, right? And like one of the biggest polluters. And again, China has their environmental problems. There's no doubt about it. But you know what? They went through a rapid industrialization phase to try to, again, get a lot of their citizens like a decent quality of life. And that comes from some level of industrialization to produce things that make people's lives easier. Now, again, we have to reevaluate this on a global scale, but don't tell me China's the problem when their per capita emissions in a country of like 1.4 fucking billion people 
is literally like less than a fifth of what our per capita emissions are in the U.S. And again, you know, we can even then get into a conversation about in the U.S. and domestically here. The rich in the U.S., I mean, if you compare a single capitalist's lifetime emissions to a poor person, even in the U.S., it's not even close. Taylor Swift takes a trip on her fucking jet and emits more emissions than a, a poor person in the U.S. or in China will emit ever in their whole fucking life. So again, global class solidarity. Yeah, I mean, we, it's easy for us to sit here as Americans and blame the PRC for using dirty technology to develop their economy. But the reality is the reason that dirty technology is what was available, what was known to be effective and hadn't been developed beyond is because of capital interests in the United States preventing that research and specifically drilling down in a literal sense in order to maintain their hegemony over this commodity. Oil and gas companies have known since the 60s that we were heading towards this direction. They had the science, they had the research, and they used it instead of trying to find a new way to produce energy. They used it in order to create advertisements and to threaten news organizations from releasing this information. Right. I mean, there were conceded efforts made to keep dirty commodities, dirty technology in place. And then we want to yell at China for using all that was available to get their own personal economy running. Like We didn't say the same thing about Japan when they did it. We didn't say the same thing to Taiwan when they did it. We didn't say the same thing to South Korea. It's now China's fault. And that's not because they're using the dirty commodities. It's because they ideologically disagree with where they believe the world economy should go in order to create a new world. And, and by the way, if you look past what the Western media is saying about China's climate initiatives, as I already acknowledged, they do have their problems. But you know what? We're talking about a 20,000 person jobs program in the U.S. right now. China's doing a hell of a lot more. And I don't care what you think about, you know, whether they're state capitalist or capitalist or still socialist or whatever. Fact of the matter is they're still putting more resources into at least trying something much more ambitious than what we're doing right now. And I would invite you to look just again beyond the buzzword riddled headlines in Western media. Yeah, which nation is pushing international organizations to create money with win-win scenarios attached to them for environmental and commodity changes to the way their economies are run in former colonial nations? It's not really the United States. It's not really the WTO. If anyone's doing it right now, it is the PRC. They're at least making movements towards that. Yeah. And, you know, we could ask for more, certainly from our position in the U.S. I think we know where we need to set our sights on. In any case, I think it's before I turn to the last aspect of the international situation as it relates to what we're talking about tonight, I do think it's worth reading just the first three paragraphs from this nation article that I mentioned, just because it really does kind of summarize, I think, everything we've been talking about, Levi, again, from like a a very liberal outlet that still is kind of forced to acknowledge um, the reality of the U.S. as it relates to global climate. So just to start this, and this was written on April 22nd of 2022, and the title is The Global South is Calling for Climate Reparations. Subtitle, Wealthy Nations Have Largely Driven Global Warming, But It Is Felt Most in Countries That Have Contributed the Least to Global Greenhouse Gas Emissions. And this is by... Alufemi Otawo and Patrick Bigger. Sorry for that mispronunciation, I'm sure. But anyway, to get into it, last year at the UN Climate Change Conference in Glasgow, 
Barbados Prime Minister Mia Motley addressed an assembly of world leaders on the state of International Climate Act. Her message, try harder. She condemned the failure of wealthier nations to deliver the resources that poorer, climate-vulnerable countries need to adapt to a warming world. Quote, simply put, she asked, when will leaders lead? End quote. The Biden administration has promised to restore the United States to its rightful role. <laughs> that, that drives me crazy. Rightful role. Yeah. Rightful role as a global leader on climate change. But charisma alone <laughs> cannot make the White House look busy enough to distract from its actual track. Maybe they should try using charisma before they yeah. say it's not going to work. <laughs> rightful role, charisma. I mean, I don't know what world this person's living in, but okay, we'll keep going. I, I promise there's some good in here. <laughs> it's better. Yeah. This year at the IMF slash World Bank spring meetings in D.C. currently underway the U.S. has the opportunity to reverse course. The Biden administration can show genuine commitment by putting debt cancellation for climate action on the agenda. Beyond the fact that the United States has consistently failed to pass comprehensive domestic climate legislation, it regularly obstructs global efforts, failing to contribute its fair share of emissions reduction efforts, underfunding global climate finance, and blocking structural reforms to global institutions like the IMF that might undermine its outsized control over global economic and increasingly environmental decision-making. These actions are all the more consequential amid calls from across the world, including from the global south, for climate reparations, a package of finance and debt cancellation that starts to compensate countries for the incalculable social, economic, and environmental harms that rich countries have caused around the world while offering fiscal space and resources to build a safer, more prosperous future. It's important to remember that this was written before the coups that have been occurring in Africa in the last few months. Yeah. It makes sense to think about them in that context. Yeah. And before all of this more recent action on BRICS. Exactly. At this point, no one can doubt the urgency of acting on climate. As the most recent IPCC analysis show, the world far off course from a a trajectory to 1.5 degrees Celsius, passing that point would greatly increase the likelihood of extreme heat waves and floods while damaging coastlines and coral reefs. While wealthy nations like the U.S. have largely driven this trend, the impact of climate change is being felt most acutely in countries that have contributed the least to global greenhouse gas emissions. This injustice follows a litany of historical and ongoing wrongs. From the centuries of colonial plunder and enslavement that enriched Europe and then the U.S. at the expense of the global south, to the austerity measures of the 1980s and 90s in response to the third world debt crisis, which stifled development and locked many countries into decades of debt dependency. The results of that dependency are, along with the pandemic's economic impact, congealing into a new debt crisis, with 58 to 65 lowest income countries somewhat between moderate risk of debt distress the full-blown default. So again, we just see the U.S. in a position to weaponize its control, again, as this article talks about, of economic institutions to harm people, right? Now it's, be, it's going beyond just the economic realm. They're all related, but to the environmental realm as well, where the U.S. is seen as kind of like the ultimate roadblock because of its desire to maintain its imperialist holding on the entire world. Yeah, you asked earlier whether or not it's becoming politically impossible for the United States to not at least make symbolic action, that they're not being forced politically to make action. 
And there are two roads that they could go down to continue being obstinate and blocking change and blocking real environmental regulation. And they will become obsolete over time. BRICS will gain power. Third world nations will gain power. It's just the trajectory, the way the world is going. I don't know if it's going to happen fast enough because uh, we're on a, you know, the sand is going through this hourglass in terms of environmental catastrophe. But there is another option. I mean, the United States, in some fantasy world, could choose to cooperate with the rest of the world and actually enact changes that change the structure of the economy on a world scale that prevent us from falling off this ecological cliff. I want to hope that's possible. And these actions that are taken in the last few weeks have shown that at least the administration acknowledges that they need to do something or else their relevance is going to decrease over time. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I don't want to spend much more time on this. I mean, I'm sure in the future we'll dive on it. We'll dive into institutions like the IMF and the World Bank as well as we get back into more, you know, imperialist analysis. Not that that's not what we're always doing anyway, but um, you know, it'll be interesting to do a deep dive on the IMF someday especially when wielded in the hands of the U.S. and the uh, in Western Europe. Before we move on to close, there's one last thing that I want to talk about that this climate action, this climate initiative obviously doesn't address at all. And it still relates to the you know, global domain. If we're going to talk about real effort to mitigate the climate catastrophe, we have to talk about the U.S. military. Yes. Okay. And there's an episode on Rev Left comrade brett they did recently i think it was it might have been part of like the guerrilla history feed but they interviewed anti-war activist mike preisner about an upcoming documentary he's working on with his inimitable wife or partner abby martin called earth's greatest enemy and they talk extensively about the u.s military's impact on the environment right you know i would say go check that out Go support that documentary. Go check out that episode. But just suffice it to say here, just briefly, that the U.S. military has emitted 1.2 billion metric tons of greenhouse gases since the so-called war on terror beginning in 2001. And it regularly outstrips entire nations like Sweden and Switzerland in annual CO2 emissions. Now, they're what we would consider industrialized nations, right? Mm -hmm. So we're talking about the military outpacing them in terms of emissions. And that says nothing of the global South. Yeah. So you have basically what could be, depending on how you, how you measure it, one of the most impactful bodies, even as it relates to entire nation states in terms of global emissions. So you cannot tell me that you're doing something meaningful on climate as you continue to increase funding for the fucking Pentagon. And people might know, Abby Martin, from the time that she was actually allowed to question Nancy Pelosi at the UN Climate Change Conference of 2021, the one in Glasgow, where she specifically asked her about the United States military's impact. And the panel gave the answer that you hear all the time, that the United States military is actually very concerned about climate change, and that they're monitoring it closely and prepared to make changes. But of course, that's Bullcrap. They're not interested in actually affecting themselves. They're interested in militarizing the world in order to protect resources for their own continual growth and function. That's not real concern. It's just preparation for what they believe to be an inevitable drowning of the world as the sea levels rise. 
Well, and I think part of that conversation was, and I don't know if it was that conversation with Pelosi or another conversation that Abby or Mike had in talking to a naval commander. They said, of course, we're taking this seriously. And that's why we need more naval investment, because as sea levels rise, we're going to need more ships, which is just the most fucking insane response that you can imagine. But like these people actually believe that that is a rational thing to do in this context, rather than saying, hey, maybe we should stop building these floating cities of fucking destruction and death. It's, in, it, it's absolutely insane. Like, it's criminal. These people need to be strung up by fucking gibbets and their eyes picked out by crows. This is crazy. Yeah, it's like saying that a mass murderer is coming and he's going to be killing at least 10,000 people <laughs> and they start digging the graves in anticipation. That's not the right response. We need to think about how to prevent this from occurring, not to prepare for the worst outcome. Yeah, to just like solidify your dominant position in like the in the catastrophic aftermath. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, these these people need to be removed from positions of power. Right. That the response that that naval commander gives is something out of a dystopian novel. It's not a real answer. You can't expect an actual person to believe that. It's not human to conceive. And, and of we're the world paying that for way. this guy's salary. So forgive me if this is the shit that I'm going to focus on and swear about on my podcast. Don't worry. I'm sure I'm sure Raytheon is covering part of the cost, too. <laughs> you know what I mean? But like, again, 50 <laughs> percent of the friggin discretionary funding goes towards this. Right. Yeah. There's no oversight whatsoever over the budget of the United States military. They have absolute discretion over how much they spend. That's the other thing, too. Like there's the spending and then there's emissions reporting. Like, who knows if we can even believe this reporting in terms of the numbers that we can actually quote here. Yeah. Like, is that 1.2 billion actually true? I mean, I believe it might be the lower end. Right. I mean, that's, that's constantly what they're stating on the empire files, which is Mike and Abby's podcast that these numbers are always incredibly flawed, but even accepting that the consequences of these numbers, even as they're reported are dire and need to be raising alarm. Not to say anything about what's actually probably happening, what the real numbers might be. This is enough. Yeah. So, again, we can't lose the force for the trees here. There's some good outcomes of this. There's organizing efforts to be commended. But, again, we have to understand the U.S. empire beyond just the domestic level. Don't get me wrong. These imperial policies do affect people at home. You know, because, again, we're taking away money from initiatives like this that could expand this to build more naval ships for when the sea levels rise. So I just want to make sure that we point that out. So we might just close by, and we may just end up rehashing some of the ground that we already tread a little bit, but it might be important for us to consider some, at least a few closing questions. You know, So the first thing, Levi, that I had for you was that is the comparison to the New Deal warranted? And as a follow-up, is it even the right question to be asking at this moment? So the comparison to the New Deal is warranted only in the fact that it's a comparison that's being made by the administration itself. It's a very intentional comparison. So on that ground, it at least needs to be acknowledged. And as we said, we're reading the Brumaire, and it's not hard to think about this in terms of first time is tragedy, second time is farce that the Biden administration is putting on the clothes of the New Deal because people, they understand that individuals consider the history of the New Deal and they think of this great man policy of FDR handing down the New Deal that was able to fix 
everything and pull America out of the Great Depression. And it's that sort of tradition, that sort of myth that they're pulling off of. The reality is much deeper, right? The reason the Biden administration is even making these piddly concessions that they're making is like the New Deal itself, because they're being forced to make these concessions. So I think in that way, the New Deal comparison is actually accurate. FDR, the New Dealers, didn't do this by their own largesse. They did it because they had no other choice. What they ended up passing was a compromise. They wanted to do much less, but they were forced to do much more because that's what the public, that's what the movements, that's what the parties demanded of them. So if we're going to take anything from that comparison, it's not that we want Joe Biden to hand down this New Deal policy. It's that we need to force him to provide it or find somebody that will. No, I agree with all that 100%. And I think I would just add does us no good to say that we need to re-implement the new deal. There is no re-implementing the new deal. We're in a completely different time, under completely different conditions, in a completely different context. So if we just try to replicate the new deal, we're not going to be meeting the moment however we're trying to meet it, through whatever mechanisms that we have. Right. As we've been going through, most of the new deal outside of their colonial aspirations was very parochial. That's not what this current crisis calls for. It needs to be international. It needs to be financial. Just as that article, as uh, sloppy as it was in the national, in the nation, it's demanding that real structural changes happen on international economic systems. It sort of couches it in the language of liberalism, which in my opinion just sort of exposes how flaccid those demands are. You know, it's claiming for we need the right leaders to lead. We know that Biden's got this charisma and he can do it. U.S.'s rightful place. Like, really? Rightful place? By what, by what metric and by what evidence can you say that we have even the capability to be the rightful leader for climate action? Right. In reality, they should be calling for the United States to stand down, to just stop blocking what needs to happen. It doesn't matter if we have this great charismatic leader, we just need to make the right decisions as a nation to get our priorities in order so that we can save the planet as a people, not as a nation. Yeah. And I think, you know, something that we talk about in organizing all the time is that obviously everybody's working class. We have a voice at the table. There are some people that have just more lived experience that can speak to maybe how you should best strategize around this. And I think to draw an analogy there, we should be listening to the people that have been most affected by colonialism and climate change to really drive conversation. Right. No good ideas can be left on the table. We need to consider everything at this moment. Honestly, center left and far left. I don't know that I really care about the right wing um, ideas that they have about solving this problem, but I'll meet people in the center as long as they are interested in fixing this cataclysmic world-ending problem. And I think that really gets to the last question that I want to throw out there before we close for tonight. But just explicitly, how should we on the socialist, communist left view or interact with this initiative specifically? I think it's more or less the catchphrase of this podcast, but it's cautious support. Yeah. We need to constantly be looking at how it's developing. Like we said earlier, is this just going to be another sort of wing of AmeriCorps where they're going to send out people making 725 and it just ends up being people taking on this initiative in order to pad out their resume? Like That's not going to be effective. That's not going to be worth supporting. But if they actually end up creating 
two twenty thousand well-paying jobs like they say they're going to do and they end up going to people that actually need that work and they actually create training services that are run by the united states government for the benefit of the people at that point i think we can start supporting aspects of it but we don't know what that's going to look like all we have is this sort of garbled say nothing language from the white house and that's a great start it's a great first step how is it going to be implemented who is it going to be for the benefit for how much money are they actually putting into this i don't want to see them throw a ton of money into something like conserve or whatever nonprofit for-profit organization that they're going to have that's just going to make them into a 20,000 strong temp agency that some guy is going to skim off the top and send these workers out to clear-cut forests because it's environmental technically. I mean that's the dystopian possibility of something like this. Yeah. I want to see it be something real. To be more like the Civilian Conservation Corps as troubled as that was as well. I mean, they did a lot of clear cutting in that as well. So there's lots of possibilities here. We need to be cautiously optimistic. Agreed. And I think for me, as we did tonight, I'll be de-emphasizing the Biden administration and emphasizing the organizational effort and the organizational work and the people's movements that went into even achieving this again. I think we can call it like a tepid victory. Even as I think that the Sunrise Movement acknowledges, you know, the people that actually did the work. So, you know, just emphasizing that aspect of it. And then, again, like I said, on my side, given what I do outside of this in terms of organizing and education, kind of waiting to pick up the pieces after, you know, some hypocrisy and failures of the administration gets exposed as it relates to what they can actually achieve in this context. You know, not being like we told you so kind of thing or anything like that, but going out meeting people, understanding how they're feeling about you know, the failures of whatever they were part of, right? And then showing them that there's possibilities outside of just organizing within the system. You know, there's this and, right? And there's these people that believe what you do, that this needs to be taken further and you need to get linked up with this and we need to organize together and we can push past this. All that work that you did, all these lessons that you learned, they're fucking valuable. And they can be used and we can use this to push this shit even further. So I guess that's how I look at it. Yeah. It's like, do you like the Biden administration, what they've done here? That's great. Volunteer in your community and help agitate for more. But for God's sake, don't donate a dime to Joe Biden or the Democratic Party. They're not interested in going further. They have to be pushed to go further. They don't need your $15. That $15 would go way further at your local agitation organization your local volunteer organization and you know what if you don't want to they don't even they don't need your vote yeah they, they don't, don't need your vote they don't need it. you know i i tell you what like for whatever positive thing that you may extrapolate that i said about biden tonight i won't be voting for the motherfucker not unless he does something radically more i don't know if he moves the national guard in order to crush the owners of you of uh you know gm ford and chrysler That'd be great. I might yeah, vote for he, him then, you know? If he strings up the uh, CEO of Exxon outside of the White House, maybe. <laughs> I mean, but, he, has uh, the power, he has the power to do that. He is the commander-in-chief. If we learned anything from 1930s fascist propaganda telling Roosevelt what he was capable of doing. Yeah. But um, for me personally, I'll be, uh, I'll be going behind uh, Claudia de la Cruz and organizing around what uh, that platform has to say with BSL. 
But again, there's a lot of different ways that we're going to attack this fight. The electoral arena is not the end-all be-all of political organizing. And I think a lot of folks are recognizing that. So we're all going to be pushing on different fronts. Yeah, I wouldn't even say it's the beginning of political organizing. It's sort of the end. Yeah. If it's an end at all. Right. All right. Well, I think we should leave it there, buddy. Again, this was kind of a impromptu episode that we thought we could pull together just to address something that is really, you know, it, it, it's pressure to what's going on both globally in the world right now and also to what we're talking about in the podcast. So I think worthwhile discussion. Hopefully you all find this enlightening. As always, thank you so much for listening. Please follow us on Instagram at Intervention Pod. Subscribe on your favorite podcast app. Leave us a review. We love you, and we'll talk to you next time. Adios, paisanos.